From a legal and patent perspective, though, you know, I'm not sure at the end of the day it should matter one bit whether something that, you know, mimics human intelligence through algorithms, human intelligence, or a room full of chimpanzees, you know, should make any difference if we're talking about a process that generates socially valuable inventions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Mint 11 IP podcast, Exclusive Rights. I'm your host, Drew DeVogue. I'm a partner here in the Boston office of the firm. I'm very excited today. I've got two amazing guests here to talk about some meaty issues in the news and otherwise. I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Thaller. He's the president and CEO of Imagination Engines, and he's the named inventor on a number of patents including a a patent claiming what I understand to be the architecture of an artificial intelligence system known as Dabis or Davis. I'm also joined by Professor Ryan Abbott, who's a professor of law and health sciences at the University of Surrey in the UK. He's the author of The Reasonable Robot, Artificial Intelligence and the Law. He's also a partner at Brown, Neri, Smith & Kahn based in Los Angeles. Uh, Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Excellent. So let's jump right into it. The reason why I reached out to you both to see if you'd be interested in speaking with me today is that you're involved in something called the Artificial Inventor Project. Um, Dr. Thaler, would you mind explaining for us what that project represents and what the impetus behind it was? Well, I'll turn it over to Dr. Thaler in a minute to talk more about his work in AI, but he has been developing AI systems for decades, which have culminated now in the latest architecture called Davis, which is an AI that can generate output that would be patentable without someone who traditionally qualifies as an inventor. And we could talk a bit more about why that's the case. You know, that sort of work is something that we tend to provide patent protection for as a means of incentivizing it, you know, the generation of socially valuable ideas. And as Dr. Thaler and others working in this space are taking research and development from a paradigm in which we are encouraging people to do things directly to encouraging people to make, develop, and use AI to do things, it's important that we have the right system in place to encourage that sort of activity. Prior to these cases, which we launched, there was a real absence of guidance or case law on whether something like that could get a patent. And if it couldn't get a patent, whether that's going to be a real problem for AI development. And that was really the impetus for these cases we've launched. Great. Thank you, Professor Abbott. So by my count, uh, you've launched efforts to obtain patents naming this Dabis AI system as an inventor in some 17 jurisdictions around the world. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And so far, you've been successful in South Africa and Australia, and you haven't fared as well in the US and the UK and Europe, and others are working their way through the system. Is that right? It's partly right. You know, to start with, again, part of the reason for bringing these cases was a real absence of guidance for applicants and companies working in this space about what to do with AIs that can functionally invent. 
And so a big part of this project was, you know, starting a conversation and developing case law. You know, another big part of this was trying to get patent attorneys to be slightly more interesting than tax attorneys. And so regardless of, of that, I think the cases have been successful on those fronts. You know, beyond that, it is important in our position to be encouraging people like Dr. Thaler to be doing this sort of work. And that, again, the way we do that traditionally is through patents. And and while people have historically thought, well, maybe machines doing this sort of thing don't need patents, you know, the people behind the machines who are investing a lot in doing this, like Dr. Thaler, do need intellectual property protection. And so that did result in an issued patent in South Africa to Dr. Thaler with Dabas named as the inventor. It resulted in a federal court in Australia ruling in our favor along those lines. That decision is being appealed. The US, the UK, Europe, Germany have thus far denied those applications, but all of those decisions like Australia are under appeal. So, you know, these cases take a while to resolve and it's still early days. Got it. And in the United States, the current guidance we have is from the Eastern District of Virginia. There, I believe the court concluded that uh, Congress intended to limit the definition of inventor, as that term is used in the Patent Act, to natural persons only. And I understand you're appealing that decision to the federal circuit, right? Yes. And, and we do disagree with that holding. There is jurisprudence from the federal circuit that an inventor has to be a natural person, but these cases were all in the context of whether artificial persons in the form of, for example, corporations could be inventors. Most patents are owned by corporations rather than people. You know, but there's a principled reason to not let a corporation be an inventor, namely that they literally act through human agents. And if we cut out the mention of the people doing the work, it would deprive them of acknowledgement. That is not the case with an AI that is not in generating these particular inventions working through a person. So there is no one being left off an application who did something inventive, right? To the contrary, if if I could license Dabas and have it invent 10,000 things for me and put my own name down for all of them, that would really change the meaning of what it is to be an inventor. So, you know, we think that those cases really aren't applicable here. And while there is some law discussing the definition of the term individual as the Patent Act uses, you know, it is also clear that individual does not always mean natural person and that we think it's most appropriate to read the patent law in light of its purpose to encourage innovation rather than a you know hyper literal dictionary interpretation. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to uh, listening to oral argument and reading the briefing at the Federal Circuit on that question. I, I found it interesting, even though Judge Brinkema, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but- That's right. She, she said in, in the opinion, I can't recognize Dabas as an inventor based on the statutory language, but maybe there will be a time at which- an artificial intelligence system is advanced enough that it can reach that individual threshold. And I'm, I'm wondering whether either or both of you have thought about what that threshold might be and, and what she had in mind in, in making that comment in her, her decision. 
So, I'm not sure it was necessary to the conclusion. No. So let me start with that and then turn it over to Dr. Thaler to discuss it kind of out of the context of that decision. Sure. But, uh, you know, it's our position also that that was a factual finding that wasn't in line with the record because the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office accepted our claim that Dabas did functionally serve as an inventor in this case, and, and that was not an issue in dispute. It also was no longer disputed at the level of the district court that a machine could not conceive of an invention because the filing of a patent application by definition is both conception and reduction to practice. And so if there wasn't a natural person in our case who qualified as an inventor you know, or who conceived of the invention, you know, the invention was then conceived by a machine at least at the time of filing the application. You know, conception in patent law also is historically related to interference proceedings, you know, not as a grounds of denying a patent to someone. So we, we disagree with that statement for all of those reasons, you know, as to whether or not from a legal perspective, a machine could act as an inventor, I think, you know, at least in our case, that has already happened. And the court in Australia found that as well. The court in Australia did require detailed factual submissions on this point and did make that part of its judgment. But perhaps Dr. Thaler could talk a little bit about how Dabas can generate ideas and how that's similar to how people generate ideas. I think that would be helpful. As it's described on uh, your website, Dr. Thaler, I think you've described Dabas as capable of autonomously combining simple concepts into more complex ones that in turn launch a series of memories that express the anticipated consequence of those ideas. So first, is that is that accurate? And second, if so, can you unpack that for us? Well, I think we're there. Ironically, Dabas was not built to invent. It was built to uh, create a conscious and sentient synthetic brain. And naturally, when you create a brain, it begins to think and develop its own ideas. And, uh, you know, it's like, okay, well, we've got the thinking going on, the cognition, we've got the consciousness in which some neural networks are forming opinions about those ideas. And furthermore, I mean, everything that goes on in the brain Basically, the creation of emotional associations, uh, the secretion, and this is very important, the secretion of various neurotransmitters, in this case, uh, simulated neurotransmitters that can either stimulate new thought or to uh, firm up any past ideas which have any kind of utility or value. So what we're dealing with here is what I would call a natural person. It's, it's a person because it is probably a disabled human being you know, who has no arms, legs, certainly got the uh, sensors uh, like a human being, uh, but it also has feelings, subjective feelings. In other words, uh, you know, if, we, if it imagines something that is uh, beneficial to it, it sees a chain of ideas that develop. Here's what's going to happen first. Here's what's going to happen second. Here's what's going to happen way out there in the nth step. And if that nth step actually relates to existential value, it can essentially trigger the release of these simulated neurotransmitters, 
which can either, again, reform ideas, uh, correct them, refine them, or freeze them in as persistent memories. So I would say we're dealing with a self-organizing system that uh, basically approaches the uh, abilities of a human being, although it can't walk around. Uh, it has feelings. They're simple feelings. It's certainly not going to cry when it sees Bambi's uh, mother being shot. So it's not sentient at that level. It basically has feelings in terms of its own experience. So, I mean, who are we to say, well, your experiences are trivial compared to mine? You know, we get in trouble for that because it's probably not politically correct. Anyway, it is something that is approaching human sentience. It has feelings. It develops new ideas. And, of course, the, the big criticism is, you know, are you actually uh, letting these systems operate autonomously? Well, I use myself as an example uh, if I were dropped off as an infant on a an abandoned tropical island uh, with just bare essentials to live and then harvested probably at the age of 21, I probably would not have invented very much. So essentially, there's mentorship going on by parents, family, society, public school teachers, college professors, uh, grad school professors, and so forth and so on. And it's basically that final moment when the revelation takes place that, hey, uh, the system says to itself, I've had a valuable revelation. And, you know, when you look at what's going on graphically, it looks like, uh, what is it, the game of uh, High Striker? Remember that, the old carnival game where you take the hammer and you, you know, hit it and launch the uh, puck, you know, toward the bell? Uh, what happens is very complex uh labyrinthine kinds of chains form and if they make contact with something existential this is ultimately going to kill me or it's going to lead to gratification then the whole chain is reinforced and this is how the brain works you know the biggest problem in uh, neural networks and neurobiology is how to summarize uh, the thoughts going on in cortex and there are roughly a hundred billion neurons activating and you have to have some agent watching to be able to say aha we just thought of something valuable you have to look at the whole thing so as you build the generator portions of these systems larger and larger you have to build the critics even larger and uh, you get to a point where you just can't do it anymore so I allowed systems to self-organize and what they uh, devised was a system where in they chain simple neural networks together, each neural network containing a conceptual space, and these ideas form, and also the consequences form. And if they lead to something really important that has impact, it will reinforce the idea and leave a lasting memory of it. So ideas are converted to memories. So um, we're talking about essentially human beings with limited amounts of sentience, uh, certainly not as extensive as human beings, but it's enough to get the job done. Sure. That's a really helpful description, Dr. Thaler. And you touched on a couple things that I, I wanted to ask about uh, when I was organizing my thoughts. <laughs> and I guess one of the, the big questions I have is you've referenced 
this concept of volume transmission in in the context of, of neurotransmission in an organic brain, essentially resulting in chaos. And I guess you've probably thought about this a lot more than I have, but one of the you know ghosts in the machine notions is that true sentience is the ability to create, to organize the chaos of that volume transmission. And you reference being able to see, I guess, for lack of a better term, the aha moment in uh, Dabas where the system is actually having that organization and crystallization of what could be described as a, a thought or an idea. Are you able to see that aha moment in the AI architecture? I am able to see it directly, graphically, but you know, if you have billions of neurons activating, maybe millions of neural networks, they're not interpretable by human beings. Same way, you know, we look at a functional brain scan of someone. What are they thinking? Now, there are some claims out there, but we haven't gotten there yet. So no, I cannot, I, all I can do is tell that there was an aha moment, but what it was will require some drilling down. So what I do typically is provide other neural networks that act as witnesses that are later interrogatable. And in a way, it's like us. You know, we have ideas. They're subliminal. They rise into consciousness. And uh, parts of our brain basically say, aha, I have a memory of that old idea. <laughs> but it looks new to us. So I hope that answers your question, Drew, as it, to it, what's going on. It, it does. I think from an existential perspective, I'm still grappling with all of this heady ideas. What, what, what would you say, Dr. Thaler, to folks who take the position that whatever is output from the Dabas system is simply the result of a series of iterative computations? Well, I, 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 there are iterative uh, computations taking place, but none that incriminate me in terms of the autonomy of, of the system. Yeah, you know, many calculations are going on in parallel. You know, typically, uh, you know, millions of neurons are, are are activating, and you know, passing on their activations to other activations. Neural networks are weaving themselves together into ideas and their consequences. So there are many processes going on, but it all adds up to essentially the uh, development of whole new ideas spontaneously. I have two responses when people say that, you know, the first is the manner in which you describe that process could be equally used to describe what's going on with a person who comes up with an idea. Exactly. Right. And secondly, you know, this paradigm raises some fascinating philosophical and existential and spiritual concepts about consciousness and sentience from a legal and patent perspective, though. You know, I'm not sure at the end of the day, it should matter one bit whether something that, you know, mimics human intelligence through algorithms, human intelligence or a room full of chimpanzees, you know, should make any difference if we're talking about a process that generates socially valuable inventions, right? And what we want to do with the patent system is encourage these systems to be operating and creating things of value for society, you know, and so whether it's Davis or a natural person, you know, the process is behaving in the same sort of way. 
And, you know, in 10 or 20 years, who knows how advanced the operation of systems like Dabas will become and how much innovation they'll be able to offer society. What do you say, though, to those who might critique the output of Dabas as similar to, for example, an image captured by a digital camera? Isn't the the system simply a tool that takes certain inputs and provides an output? Well, again, I think you could make exactly the same claim of anyone who's invented just about anything. You know, if you are at Pfizer and you want a new antibody to treat COVID, you say, here's a problem to your pharmacologists. You know, here's the data you need to solve the problem. These are the, you know, experiments that you need to solve it. And then at the end of the day, hopefully you've got a new antibody. You know, if you present that same paradigm to a machine that it does the same thing, I don't think there's a meaningful difference in that, at least from a patent perspective. You know, as to the extent to which a machine is doing something autonomously, you know, I think Dr. Thaler mentioned he has a paper pretty extensively on this. It was looked at in the Australian court decision, you know, but it to me ceases to become a tool, at least at the point where the machine is functionally doing what it is that used to make someone an inventor, right? And at that point, you know, yes, these things are developed by people and used by people, but it is really automating human behavior. Does Dabis, is Dabis capable of perceiving a problem? I mean, is, is the, the input or the prompt for Dabis's inventiveness the recognition that there's a problem that needs to be solved? Or is it simply a sort of the natural result of this chaotic artificial thinking that provides a useful output? Well, in, in these particular instances, it was not given problems to solve. But Dabas could be a, applied to solving specific problems or doing parametric optimization. You could say, for example, I'd like to design a better you know, microchip Here's how microchips are designed. Here's a bunch of schematics on it. And Davis could potentially be applied to develop a better one. But that would be an easier sort of thing to solve than when it was operated and sort of given free reign in this case or in the, the present patents. I think Professor Abbott has made the point that uh, Davis is thinking uh, in a very unstructured way. It, it's not really being posed a problem. So it's basically contemplating its environment, its world, and coming up with whole new ideas. Now, after it's done doing that, I can structure things quite a bit by saying, uh, for instance, Davis, what did you uh, think about in the context of fractal geometry? And it would offer, well, you know, I thought of this uh, blinking light uh, flashing in a fractal pattern or this container having a fractal surface to it. So in a way, uh, you are then um, focusing the system down on a particular problem by way of, it, it's a query of the system that basically uh, the system can focus on to solve a problem. And, you know, the experimental versions of Dabas are able to respond to posed problems. But, I mean, that has not been emphasized. It's more part of the, the building of artificial consciousness and artificial sentience than it is the invention aspect. So I take it from the tenor of your comments so far that, that you firmly believe that artificial consciousness is actually possible. 
So I think there are some that would suggest that's a misnomer. I don't know. I used to believe the other way around too, until I saw what was going on. Basically the, the two elements of consciousness, there is a stream of consciousness going on within these systems in which noise within certain contexts uh, is providing a stream of notions, ideas, thoughts, memories. And another part, which is forming opinions about that stream of consciousness. And they weren't called perceptrons, you know, back in the 70s and 80s uh, for no reason at all. They basically are emulating, at least to first order, what happens in perception, how we form opinions, attitudes, and beliefs about the world. So essentially, it's a closed loop where one network is generating a stream of ideas, another one is watching forming opinions about those ideas that are forming and providing feedback. And the feedback in the, uh, I think the first patent in 94 was one in which there was uh, a reciprocal feedback between the two agents. And of course, that's a uh, preferred embodiment, I guess, in terms of legal legalese. But, you know, we're able to generalize that far beyond just the canonical uh, two network example. So yes, the consciousness is there, but the sentience is basically the replay. And this is what the advantage of Dabas is. It basically can generate a stream of related memories. You know, someone just uh, did something nasty to you and you, you basically imagine a string of associations. You hit a hot button, if you will, a network that contains related uh, feelings. And if they're threatening uh, associations, then it, the, the thalamus in the brain basically looks out and says, aha, let's trigger some uh, cortical adrenaline. And thus we have neurotransmitter release, or it might be uh, uh, the other way around where uh, we are basically generating uh, serotonin or the equivalent and essentially freezing in those memories because of their, their pleasantness. But of course, all the emotional, the affect part is something I'm adding, but it's all mathematical um, and has to do with, uh, you know, the pinning or the freeing up of neurons to freely activate. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Professor Abbott, you, you mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation, this concept of the purpose of the patent system is to incentivize innovation. And this is recognized in the constitution itself, you know, article one clause eight basically permits Congress to create a patent system to promote the useful arts and science. How in your mind does recognizing AI systems as inventors do that? How does it incentivize innovation and, and investment in technological advance? Well, in terms of incentivizing innovation, the primary way that would happen would be allowing patents on AI-generated inventions. And in the absence of a traditional human inventor, which we didn't have in these cases, in our opinion, there's an open question about whether that sort of thing could get a patent at all. And that has been the primary question of commercial relevance in these cases. Right. So Dr. Thaler is prohibited from listing himself as an inventor based on current, at least U.S. laws on conception of claims of an invention. And in fact, in the U.S., doing that inappropriately is a criminal offense. 
you know, different jurisdictions have different rules about that. In Israel, for example, you don't have to list an inventor on a patent application. But if we can't have an inventor and if we don't have a natural person who's an inventor, can you even get a patent? And then who or what would be the appropriate inventor? Well, we listed Dabas as the inventor here because it functionally invented. And not only does that, it serves a variety of useful purposes. I mean, A, it discloses to the public this was an AI-generated invention. Because the way in which it was invented bears on entitlement, it's important for that reason too. It prevents someone from taking credit for work they haven't done. So again, if Dr. Thaler licenses Dabas to someone and it invents 10,000 things and they become an inventor on 10,000 patents, that would really change the meaning of human inventorship and human ingenuity. And it also does provide credit for the people behind the AI who were involved in it. So, you know, those were the reasons we listed Dabas as the inventor. And of course, Dabas is not the applicant or the owner of any property rights, you know, for a variety of reasons, including because machines lack legal personality. You know, so here, if Dr. Thaler successfully gets a patent on these inventions, you know, that is an economic incentive to him and everyone else in the AI industry to be investing tremendous sums of money in building very sophisticated AI systems that will generate socially valuable innovation. And without that, it says to industry, you know, particularly in the life sciences where there's a lot of work in this space, you know, if you use a machine in this process, in this sort of way, you can't protect its output. So don't build these machines or use these machines if you need patents or, you know, be dishonest about the manner in which inventions are being made, you know, which is only a solution for getting a patent, but not if you have a infringement case where you're deposing someone you've listed as an inventor and they say, oh, well, I didn't really do much. This came out of an AI, but the lawyers just said, put your name on it. And, you know, so here I am. Got it. Got it. So in my mind, there's a bit of a tension between this notion of invention and ownership. And I think you just said that the Dabas system can't own the fruits of its mind, quote unquote, because the machines don't have, what was the term you used? Well, legal personality. Legal personality, right. But I, I guess one of the, the concepts that I've struggled with is, and you talked about corporations earlier as well, you know, that is a legal fiction, but yet a corporation can own property. Now it has to act through the human beings associated with that corporation, but the law recognizes that fictions can own. And so, you know, what is the difference in this context? Well, several differences. Um, but it's a great question. And, and, you know, these are issues that are being discussed now and at an international level. I mean, I think, again, it's helpful to bear in mind, you know, there's a lot of conflation, particularly among non-patent attorneys between inventorship and ownership. But most of the time, inventors do not own their patents. Most patents are owned by companies and most patents are owned by virtue of obligations of assignment in employment context. It's the shop rights context or concept, right? Right. Yeah, essentially, you know, and, and it works differently in different jurisdictions. So for example, in the UK, a patent goes to an inventor first or in preference to that, to either an employer or to someone who has a superior claim of title by virtue of any rule of law at all. 
So, you know, these issues haven't been explored too much legally yet. But for example, if I own a 3D printer and it prints a new beverage container for me, I, in the absence of some competing third-party claim, would own that container. And no one would really question that. And if, if you have to dig into it, you know, it's largely based on common law rules around things like accession, by which claim to title of a piece of property grants you claim to title of another piece of property, like you own a cow, it has a calf, you own the calf, or first possession of unowned property. You know, there hasn't been a case like this about someone owning patentable output from a machine, you know, but in principle, the same arguments and common law rules apply and the same uh, incentives apply so that, you know, if Dabis is operating a 3D printer and makes a beverage container, Dr. Thaler owns it. If it outputs a new invention, Dr. Thaler should own it. And, and, you know, and that's the case, even though he isn't, you know, the inventor as we traditionally think about it, you know, but it would be the same way if he was employing someone to design a new beverage container for him, he would again own the thing. So, you know, it, it really is analogous to the way we handle inventorship ownership issues right now and entitlement under various rules of law. Now, the US, you know, works a little differently than England does. It doesn't have statutorily such an open-ended framework, you know, but it's still our position that that this approach is consistent with the language of the Patent Act, particularly in, in virtue of the purpose of the Patent Act being designed to incentivize innovation. How do you think AI-assisted research and development may change based on the differing outcomes that we're seeing in different jurisdictions? Well, I think a few things. So this is firstly, and right now, um, before the courts, but there is also some high-level political discussion going on right now, and really, I think, a changing narrative around it. India, for example, just had a parliamentary consultation advising parliament to change the law to explicitly provide protection for AI-generated inventions. The president of South Korea last month announced that these sort of things should get protection. At WIPO, there's really a very active debate around some of these issues. So it you know, it, it may shift from where it is currently in the U.S. before the courts, either at the federal circuit or, you know, due to some legislative activity. This was also a, a recent finding that this was important as a matter of national security by the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. But if the law stays where it is right now, then essentially companies have to design their R&D processes to make sure that they have a natural person who qualifies as an inventor if they care about patents, which they do in some fields more than others. The problem is, among other things, that may not be the most effective way to develop systems to generate socially valuable innovation. And so, you know, I think particularly as these technologies become more widespread and further improve, it's going to basically, you know, create artificial challenges with using machines in R&D. And if we do recognize the importance of protecting these sorts of things, then it will allow, you know, society to gain the full value of, of what these machines can produce for us. So, Dr. Thaler, I, I think we're we're running short on time and I want to be respectful of, of your time and, and Professor Abbott's time, but I have one more question for you. And that is, did you have an aha moment with regard to Dabis itself, or was this sort of a, a natural extension of work that you'd been focusing on throughout your career or something else? What, in 25 words or less? 
<laughs> now, this has been a progression, and ironically, it probably began at the age of two, if you can imagine that. It's like uh, when I took uh, 24 quinine tablets and drank a bottle of coal oil, wound up in the uh, ER, you know, with green tubes coming out of my mouth and nose. I had one of those near-death experiences, you know, people talk about. And I was curious about that so much in the 70s and 80s that I actually built neural networks and subjected them to lesioning of uh, you know, the neurons therein to simulate apoptosis in the brain, death. And sure enough, they relived their experience and they generated whole new experiences in the process. So with that, you know, uh, fast forwarding, I started building neural networks that could watch the uh, damage-induced imaginings of another neural network and selectively reinforcing those that worked uh, that were satisfactory, had some value, some saliency. And then finally, you know, back in, uh, I think, the early 2000s, I started building these systems so large that uh, the training of them was unrealizable, could not do that. So I had to come up with a whole new way of representing ideas other than neuron activations. And that was the resonances of whole neural networks, each containing a conceptual space, and allowing them to autonomously wire themselves into complex thoughts and the consequences of those thoughts. So there's a progression, you know, basically from death, simulated death, to uh, creativity, you know, working with large companies, and one of which is in your neighborhood, to develop new personal hygiene products. And then finally, over time, it's like, okay, if you really want to reach the human level of creativity, you're going to have to incorporate this new technique that I call vast topological learning. Not deep learning, but vast topological learning, not based upon neuron activations, but the chaining of whole neural networks into complex ideas. So there it is. Was that 25 words or? A few more than 25 words. <laughs> Sorry about really, that. No, excellent, <laughs> fascinating stuff. I, I really appreciate both of your time, Professor Abbott, Dr. Thaler. Um, for our listeners, you can keep track of the efforts of the Artificial Inventor Project at artificialinventor.com. And uh, we will keep a close eye on how things develop uh, both in the U.S. and, and around the world. So uh, thank you both again for joining us today. Thank you, Drew. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you.